The thick forests of the Pacific Northwest are rumored to hide a secret so unbelievable, so captivating, that on first glance, it would seem to be nothing more than a campfire story. Sasquatch has left an incontrovertible mark across North American legend and pop culture. Could there be an unknown giant hominid yet undiscovered to science? These recordings of reported Bigfoot vocalizations captured in the 70s by businessman Ron Moorhead and journalist Al Berry, deep within the Sierra Mountains, are truly nightmare-inducing. The recordings could be some of the most conclusive evidence for the existence of Sasquatch. Ron Moorhead told us more about this encounter. I started this Bigfoot thing in 1971 uh, when I was invited to a camp in the High Sierras. None of us were looking for Bigfoot or anything about it. We were just as a hunting camp. And uh, most of us didn't talk about what went on up there at the time, only to our friends and relatives, because it was kind of, oh, kind of weird, to be honest with you, some of it was. Known as the Sierra Sounds, their story is compelling, controversial, and truly a strange phenomenon. Dr. Jeff Meldrum, professor of anthropology at Idaho State University, is convinced that there is enough evidence to warrant consideration to the existence of an unknown hominid in North America. Dr. Meldrum is one of the eminent scientists pushing for serious inquiry into the subject. He runs a peer-reviewed paper called The Relict Hominid, which publishes papers on the topic and is available for free online. He also owns one of the world's largest Sasquatch footprint collections, much of which he inherited from the late Grover Krantz, a respected anthropologist. Sasquatch is a name, an, an anglicized form of a indigenous name derived from, particularly from the tribes of the British Columbia coast, the Pacific Northwest, which, which translates essentially as wild man of the woods. Throughout history, we have evidence of uh, a fascination by human cultures with the possible existence of non-human, humanoid uh, creatures that uh, usually are denizens of the forest. So we're, we're talking in this case about a, a relic hominoid, as I would refer to it, a persistent population of, of in this case, very large, uh, you know, averaging anywhere from six and a half to nine and a half feet tall, hair covered, but, but otherwise generally humanoid looking in appearance. Only in the sense that it stands upright, you know, vaguely the uh, outline of a human, but there's so many aspects and we can go on and on about the distinguishing characteristics. Very large in, in physique, uh, very robust, very ape-like in, in many of its qualities, but resembling humans in that it stands and walks and runs on two legs. Stories of Sasquatch have existed in North America for centuries. 
different Native American tribes have various names for the creature, but they all essentially describe the same thing. A giant, hairy, wild humanoid creature who lives in the forest. Even tribes that occupy areas now that seem very constrained and atypical of where one might encounter Bigfoot, their oral traditions and legends extend to times when their population may have occupied areas that were ecologically appropriate. In addition to their uh, big size and the fact that although they haunt you know, the nether regions of the mountainous forested areas, they're feared oftentimes because they often are attributed with abducting adults, especially women, and also children, and eating them. They're cannibal giants. The most common evidence for the existence of Sasquatch are eyewitness reports. There are thousands of accounts from credible witnesses spanning decades. Even Jane Goodall weighed in on the subject. On NPR, she said, Well, now you'll be amazed when I tell you that I'm I'm sure that they exist. I've talked to so many Native Americans who've all described the same sounds, two who've seen them. Dr. Meldrum gave us more background on Sasquatch sightings in the Sierra Mountains. I mean, if you go to one of the online databases like the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, you, you get a sense. I mean, that's not the end all by any means. But it, but it does convey a sense of the relative frequency and type of, of encounters, be they footprint finds or bumps in the night or visual encounters. But up and down that, uh, you know, from Northern California all across the state, and then down the spine of the Sierra Nevada mountains south of Lake Tahoe, yes, lots of encounters. I have had a few instances where people have contacted me directly. Uh, there was a gentleman who often... Uh, you know, he, he was a trail runner. He uh, haunted the areas uh, just north of Yosemite, and he uh, encountered footprints, and, and they were quite quite convincing. They were about 14 inches long and uh, very, uh, very interesting. Joe Hauser, an environmental consultant and biologist, told us about a personal encounter he had in the Sierras. My golden mining partner and I were at a at a remote camp in the Sierras, and uh, we were up there mining for the summer. And after we finished mining, we were sitting around the campfire after dinner, and all of a sudden, up the canyon from us, we heard two very loud screams, almost like a howler monkey on steroids, and it was followed by a very large whoop. And I kind of came off my chair and I looked at my partner. I go, I go, Herman, what the hell was that? He just looked at me very matter-of-factly and said, oh, that's Sasquatch Bigfoot. You haven't heard one yet? I said, no, I haven't. And then uh, we threw some more logs on the fire and proceeded to have a conversation about his experiences uh, with the Mundo Sierras uh, in and around the area that we had been gold mining in. Sasquatch stories are entrenched in the region, with many credible witnesses reporting something they can't explain. In fact, not many years before the Sierra sounds were recorded, there was a rash of Bigfoot sightings in the same area. An article written by the San Francisco Chronicle in 1965 called it the Terror of Tuolumne. Tuolumne County covers the area between Tahoe and Yosemite. The article reads, There is mountain testimony that giant man animals may be roaming the remote forest and mountains of the northwestern part of the United States. Two men in responsible positions have told this reporter 
they encountered the hairy subhumans at different times and places. There exist tape-recorded interviews with others who have either seen one of the monsters or heard its hideous scream, or smelt what they described as the foul stench of its body. These creatures, they said, appeared to be half-ape and half-man and weighed more than 500 pounds. One report, which was published in the Union Democrat in 1963 and is archived in the Bigfoot Field Research Organization database, has eerie parallels to Ron and Al's own encounters. The story involves two police officers in Tuolumne County, William Huntley and Albert Miller. The two were responding to a call from a man who said he saw something nine to 10 feet tall. The anonymous caller said, it was moving around, it appeared to be human, but it was the most awful thing I've ever seen. I'm scared, I'm an adult and I'm not crazy. I'm not drunk, I don't even drink. When the officers arrived, they reported hearing what sounded like a human in distress. The sounds seemed to shift from human to animalistic, similar to the recordings captured by Ron and Al, as heard here. In the end, the officers had no explanation for the sounds, and they were unable to find any evidence as to what was making them. This is just one of many reported Sasquatch encounters in the Sierras. Not long after this, the encounters at the Sierra hunting camp began. It was August of 1971, when the Johnson brothers headed to their deer camp deep within the Sierras. That evening, they experienced some really raucous noises, and uh, they thought at first it was a bear, but then they realized bears don't make sounds like that. So they, the avid hunters had been visiting this camp since 1958, actually been going there hunting. And uh, they went outside after all the commotion stopped, and they seen this big, huge uh, five-toed footprint in the mud. They uh, came out and told the other guys, which I wasn't part of the group at that time, they all wanted to know what was going on. One of the hunters, Donald, was so terrified by the noises, he left early the next morning, while the rest of the group, including his brother Bill, stayed behind. When the hunting party didn't return as planned, he enlisted the help of friend Ron Moorhead to make sure nothing had happened to the group. I, uh, I took the hike into camp. It's about an eight-mile trek, pretty aggressive trek at that and uh, through, uh, in the Sierra Nevada mountains and uh, right deep into the wilderness. And uh, it's about 8,400 feet to camp elevation. So uh, it was pretty difficult to get to, but we got there, the guys were okay. By this point, talk of Bigfoot was spreading through the camp. I seen the big track, but I said, well, that's a Bigfoot, whatever made that. <laughs> so therefore it's kind of considered a Bigfoot. But all the creatures uh, uh, had the same type of splayed uh, footprint that uh, we that people see now that I posted uh, and this is the same prints we've been seeing for years up there and since I've been going up there for just 50 years I've been studying this phenomenon the encounters at the camp continued over the months and the vocalizations and large human-like footprints were unlike anything the group had ever seen 
we have a shelter up there, which we go into. It's kind of a makeshift shelter of logs, maybe against some cables that were wrapped around a tree. So we're huddled up inside this little group of trees. We'll call it the shelter. And we would stick our microphones outside the shelter, wait for them to come around. We had cassette recorders, that's all you had. I had a top-notch, uh, one of the best you could buy at the time. It wasn't until 1971-72 when we, uh, Warren Johnson, the leader of the group, he contacted Ivan Sanderson. Ivan Sanderson is a British biologist who is considered by many to be the founding father of cryptozoology, the study of unknown animals. And Ivan Sanderson uh, read the letter that Warren wrote him, 23-page handwritten letter. I thought it was probably a hoax, somebody pulled his leg, but he thought he sent it out to Peter Byrne and study Bigfoot there. And so Peter's read it, he felt the same thing, but he thought he'd uh, send it down to Al Berry, who was in California where we lived. And uh, Al Berry got it and uh, thought he'd come down and interview us. Al Berry, an investigative reporter with the record spotlight, decided to join Ron and the others on a trip to the camp. Al was certain that this was all a hoax, but was eager to find evidence and prove it as such. Al has since passed away, but we were able to connect with some of his colleagues at the Record Spotlight. He was a big guy who was interested in outdoors. He wasn't a flashy fellow. He didn't talk a lot or tell a whole lot of stories in the newsroom like some other guys did. He didn't hold court. He was a guy who just did his job and did it well enough that he was expected or called upon to take on stories on a deadline like uh, murderers and, and the like. And, and he was uh, well-liked by the other members of the staff. Al Berry himself spoke in an interview on an episode of In Search Of from the 70s. It was a remote high mountain area and uh... I was aware that there had been some strange goings on uh, in this area from accounts of other people who had been there. And uh, it was a long hike in. And uh, uh, I got in there in the late afternoon. I set my uh, tape recorder up. I put my mic, uh, taped it to a tree uh, a little ways away from where I'd be bedding down. And uh, then proceeded to wait along and see what developed. Later on that evening, after it grew dark, well, uh, I was tired from the hike in, and I uh, had begun to doze off when all of a sudden uh, I was awakened by some strange sounds. It was very startling. I uh, I didn't know what to think. Uh, I had very mixed emotions. On one hand, I was wondering, well, could somebody possibly be out there doing it, uh, some human being? And on the other hand, uh, viscerally, my uh, knees were shaking and my uh, insides were turning a bit. And I was wondering uh, if maybe what I was hearing was some creature that was uh, stranger than anything that we knew. Al had become totally convinced that there were Sasquatch visiting the camp. And Ron and Al were even able to capture incredible audio recordings of the vocalizations that had terrified the hunters. For years, Ron had never actually seen what was producing the noises, 
it wasn't until 1974 that he actually caught a glimpse of one of them for the first time. I saw one in 1974 when we were just got into camp. And I write about this in my first book, Voices in Wilderness. We got in there late in the evening and started unpacking it. That's when I started having this encounter, and that's when I saw one that night. And uh, I started recording. I got my little recorder out of the saddlebag, and uh, I didn't haul my big one in at the time. And uh, with this recorder and started recording my interaction with them. And I got the wood knocks. Uh, we say it's wood knock. I've never seen one knock on a tree, but you hear these knocks, and they're rhythmic. What we were recording was rhythmic. <laughs> You also hear clocking rocks together the same way, and then you hear whooping. Different types of whoops will go around, and I think that's how they interact with each other before they start yapping their chatter. And they do chatter very rapidly when they get into chattering. Uh, that night I saw one, uh, like I said, made this big samurai cry behind me. It was so fast, I, I can't tell you any details of it. It was very big, very smooth. It's how it ran through the woods like that, I don't know. Of all of the recorded sounds or vocalizations attributed to Sasquatch, I think the Sierra sounds, they are to, to sound recordings what the Patterson-Gimlin film is to, is to photographics. They are just kind of head and shoulders up there. Now, <clears throat> uh, there remains questions about it. And, of course, if you don't aren't open to the possibility of the existence of Sasquatch, you'll focus on all of the other potential explanations and, and uh, hoax conspiracy theories. But whatever it is, is, is uh, producing very loud, high-volume uh, vocalizations. There's, uh, you know, growls and grunts and, and chatter. Some of the most interesting uh, have been referred to as samurai chatter because they sound like that very guttural Japanese utterances that uh, that you know you hear on some of the World War II movies and samurai movies and so forth. But the one that caught my attention more than anything was the whistle. There's a point where the witnesses they whistle trying to call them in, and there's a response. You can clearly hear the human, the kind of muffled sort of whistle and uh, whistling between their teeth. The response comes back loud and clear, but it's different. It sounds like uh, it has a harmonic, like there's an, an overtone to it. I know there, there is one paper that's been published. Uh, it's uh, published in the proceedings of a conference that was held up at the University of British Columbia. Uh, two authors, uh, uh, Curlin and Hurdle, they're not linguists or bioacousticians, or, but they have skills in uh, sound analysis. And they do point out that it is possible to generate that kind of harmonic if the microphone is saturated. In other words, if the sound is so intense and so close to the microphone that it can uh, 
create this uh, apparent harmonic. Or the other explanation is that it represents a much shorter vocal tract than the other very loud vocalizations, suggesting that they're creating this sound by also employing their, um, their pharynx. So they're not whistling through their teeth or through their lips, but they're whistling back in the back of their throat, which is really quite interesting. I mean, it, uh, you know, like a bird would sing with its syrinx, it's called. And that was fascinating to me because that actually suggests the potential for some extra laryngeal air sacs, perhaps, in, in uh, the Sasquatch, which wouldn't be unexpected at all because they're present in the other three uh, groups of great apes, the orang chimps and gorillas. The one, one of the hesitancies I have about the whole thing is the footprints. I mean, my, my litmus test is the footprints. I think most of them were came in that uh, were stated as being 18 inches. But the thing about it that causes concern is, is the sole of the foot looks extremely triangular with a, a heel that's fairly narrow and five toes displayed squarely across the end of the foot, so squarely that I can't tell you if it's a right or a left foot. I'm not pointing fingers at anyone or passing judgment. I'm just saying that it's, it makes me uneasy that there's not a compelling corroboration by very credible-looking footprints associated with this event. I asked Dr. Meldrum, Jeff Meldrum, who's a footprint expert, and uh, he wanted to see him, but I see no upside to that because he based everything on the Patterson track, which I don't think is compared at all. Uh, I just, I just didn't, didn't let him look at them, didn't give them to him. He could see the pictures of them, but. Uh, I'm afraid he would use the classical science to try to judge them and thinking that they have to compare the Patterson tracks where they're not real. And we knew they were real. Whatever was up there was, was real. And nobody's pulling anybody's leg. And how could anybody be up there year after year after year showing the same type of footprints? And they're different sizes because we had different sized creatures. Ron is a, a very, very mild-mannered man. He, uh, he comes off very credible, very believable. Um, he... Uh, has some different ideas about Sasquatch and, and its nature than I do. We didn't realize how special it was. and We underestimated what we were dealing with up there. We were thinking of them just as kind of a wild ape in the woods that hadn't been documented yet. And a lot of people still think that. And that's okay if they want to think that, but i got to tell you, they're probably wrong. <laughs> so these things are more than that, a lot more. And they started doing some things up there that we could not put a finger on, you could not figure out how they did it and what was going on, lights and sounds and things that just had no classical answer, in classical science anyway. Al Berry, having a master's degree in science, said, don't tell people about this stuff, but I do now because I think I found the science that might, might help people understand more about what these things could be. That's quantum science. I think he's strayed a little into the weeds on the application of quantum physics to the macro world and how that would relate to uh, the Sasquatch phenomenon. And it's always been a little, an uncomfortable tension, my hesitancy to accept on face the footprint evidence and then the potential implications of what that would mean if they're not credible. And so we, you know, we, we, uh, I'm, I'm usually pretty good uh, at uh, maintaining good personal relationships with individuals, even in the face of 
of um, differences of personal opinion, uh, you know, I've, I've had no reason to doubt his, um, his credibility. Ron and Al reached out to an established organization to listen to their tapes to provide a professional opinion on what may have caused them. Fauna Communication Research Organization, which studies endangered animal communication, needed someone to visit the site of the recordings and provide a report on the surrounding area prior to them commenting. Joe Hauser was the one who submitted the report. After spending three days up there, my conclusion was, based on the remoteness of the area and no evidence of, of, of faking it, I, I didn't feel that the sounds were faked. I, I felt they were actually real. And also based on what I had heard in the Sierras, I felt that they were probably on the right track. Al Berry even had the tapes analyzed by the acoustic laboratory Syntonic Research Incorporated, the same company who studied the Nixon tapes. Uh, he went to them and asked them if they could look into it. Well, they looked and said uh, the sounds were spontaneous, so they were taken at the time of recordings. There was no 60-cycle hum, which was shown pre-recorded in a studio. They were too powerful to have been human-made. Dr. Lynn Curlin, a professor of electrical and computer engineering, with an interest in electronic speech analysis, conducted a year-long study on the recordings. From what we could determine, there were no evidences of re-recording at slower speeds, definitely features in those sounds that were correlated to an extremely large human male. Measurements that you would expect seven to seven and a half feet tall. The tapes were also analyzed by Nancy Logan, a human speech expert, who stated, I believe that some of the primitive communication is going on in the form of primitive language. The first time I listened to the tapes, I thought it was linguistically a little more sophisticated than I do now. After listening to them again, I think that the creatures are a little more animal-sounding, but I still think it is language. I challenge anyone to make those exact same noises with the exact same pronunciation at that speed. Nancy wasn't the only person to think the vocalizations on the tapes represented a language. In 2008, Ron received an unexpected phone call from Scott Nelson, who had stumbled upon the Sierra recordings and was stunned when he too recognized elements of language on the tapes. I'm a 20-year veteran of the U.S. Navy as a uh, cryptolinguist and interpreter of Russian Spanish and Persian. You know, what we were trained to do is to listen into communications, you know, whatever our target languages were. I know maybe probably two guys that have listened to more human voice on tape than I. When I got out of the Navy, I started teaching, and that's what I did for 20 years, teaching those languages. My son Stephen had the day off from school, but we did not, so he came to school with me. He had a project to write a paper on something of his interest. So I called 12-year-old boys. I said, Dad, well, I want to do either on Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, or UFOs. I said, well, you know, I said, take your pick. So he says, okay. He said, Bigfoot. So we started Googling Bigfoot. So we were finding stuff. And he says, Dad, what do you think Bigfoots sound like? So I Googled, I literally Googled Bigfoot sounds. And that's when I came on Ron Moorhead. 
I walked out of there that day at school. <laughs> I was kind of in shock. My son, Stevie's like, Dad, what's wrong with you? But almost immediately, there were three things. Number one, I was hearing a language. Number two, it was not a human being. And number three, uh, it was not fake. And by the way, there's actually areas on the different parts of the tapes where we think they are referring to each other by name. The big male almost seems to be telling a joke about the humans. And you can almost imagine him saying, oh, look at these little uh, hairless apes. Ha <laughs> ha. And then he almost, and it, it sounds like he actually laughs at his own joke. There's two of them across the creek at the big rocks. Hard act to follow. You sound like he talks to others and they talk to each other. Yeah. That's part of the characteristics of language, you know, the expression of emotion. Scott has become an advocate for the authenticity of the recordings. And he is actually working on a project to transcribe what he hears on the tapes. There is so much about this story that may remain a mystery forever. But perhaps we aren't meant to understand it. I think that they have abilities that are way beyond us. Especially out in the woods. I think, I think the force, you know, is their machine. People claim that, oh, they don't have culture, they don't have technology. I say, no, bullshit. Uh, the force is their machine. The number one thing that protects them is elusiveness from us. While Ron won't disclose the exact location of the hunting camp for those curious to have their own experiences, we did ask him if he has any advice for those looking to have their own encounter. He recommends going out into the woods and camping in areas where Sasquatch are commonly sighted. Go there and set up camp and don't change things around. Just be still and don't jump up and down when they start hearing something like a big crack or a big whoop knock or something like that just be still uh, if i don't think they got your attention they'll keep getting closer and doing more and that's what was happening with us that night yeah and don't try to trick them because they'll see right through that we tried to trick them so many people ask why did you get a picture well it's not like you're trying to trick a bear or a mountain lion or something like that it's they, they got a consciousness about them an intuitiveness about us and we don't we don't we didn't understand then i do now and most people that are having experiences and had experiences over the years are just kind of like at the Sierra Camp. It's hunters out hunting, people camping, people down by the river. Their purpose is not out there to look for Sasquatch. And so I tell people, go out in the woods and set up a camp and stay there and keep going back. And as you go back, if they're there, they get used to you. And my experience is eventually they will make some sort of contact with you. The question remains, are the recordings real? Oh, I definitely think it could be, yes. You know, I don't, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't use the word believe, but based on the evidence, I think the possibility is very real. They are much more naturalistic sounding, much more what I would expect for a large primate. But uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not 
100%. For people who are who are questioning the Sierra Sounds, based on my research, uh, being at the Sierra Camp and knowing uh, Al Berry and Ron Moorhead uh, for years, I know that uh, this is a, an, an honest representation of what they recorded up there and the experiences they were having. And based on the remoteness of the place and the time and technology at that time, I don't think there's any way that they could have been faked. Well, I I've experienced crazy things. We're not the uh, we're not the head of the food chain, as far as I'm concerned. Here, let us know if you've ever heard anything unexplained in the woods at night on Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom, and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Please give us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Visit www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Tarara. It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Tarara. Theme music by Tara Monk. A special thanks to Ron Moorhead, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, Scott Nelson, Joe Hauser, Mark Beauchamp, and Gilbert Moore for sharing their experiences and knowledge with us. You can learn more about Ron's experiences at his website, ronmoorhead.com. And you can read Dr. Meldrum's academic journal at isu.edu slash rhi. Additional music provided by Sergi Cheremizinov, Kevin Hartnell, Kai Engel, Ghost Stories Incorporated, Sergi Quadrado, and Tech Theist. Links to the artist's websites are available in the show notes.